This is Kate Mercer on the Go Well program. I'm so excited to be sharing with you today an interview with Dr. Michael Mosley. Um, we're talking with him all about sleep. Dr. Michael Mosley is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Fast Diet, The Eight Week Blood Sugar Diet, The Clever Guts Diet, The Fast 800, and Fast Sleep. Dr. Mosley trained to be a doctor at the Royal Free Hospital in London before joining the BBC where he spent three decades as a science journalist and executive producer. Now freelance, he is a well-known television personality and was named Medical Journalist of the Year by the British Medical Association. Welcome to uh, the Go Well Radio uh, program again, Dr. Michael Mosley. It's such a pleasure to have you back on for a second time. Hi there. Um, yeah, I just, just wanted to uh, have a chat with you specifically about sleep this time because it's just something that's affecting all age groups, isn't it? An issue. I, I don't think anyone escapes sleepless nights. Do you agree? Absolutely. It obviously particularly affects people as they get older, but teenagers aren't getting anything like enough sleep. And uh, young parents, particularly soon after they've had their first child, uh, they start to endure sleepless nights. And on average, they continue for six years. So pretty well all groups, but some groups seem to be having worse time than others. Absolutely. I saw something in a in our local paper uh, a little while ago in our Good Weekend magazine, and it was a full page, and it just had the words or the numbers 3am, 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 all over the whole page. Absolutely. That is a very typical pattern uh, that people wake up. Some people find it difficult to get to sleep, but a lot of people wake up in the middle of the night and they sort of lie there worrying. Can we maybe um, just start with your own experience that you've had insomnia and you still have insomnia? Have you? I still occasionally suffer. I'm currently in a hotel room in Australia, in Perth, in fact, and I'm here isolating with my wife, Claire, and we've been here now for just over a week. And that's um, because, you know, we come here from the UK and they want to make sure that we haven't got COVID-19. And so that's been difficult because it's a small room. Uh, you can only pace about nine paces by three mm -hmm. paces wide. And so we can't get any light in here, particularly because I'm just facing a big blank wall. So that's pretty stressful as well. So not the best time, but even in normal times, um, I have a tendency to wake at 3 a.m. And that used to worry me a lot. These times, um, I'm, I'm more relaxed about it, and I've learned all sorts of techniques to combat it. And that's why I wanted to write the book, because there are quite a few books come out recently telling us, you know, that if we don't get enough sleep, it's going to rot our brains, make us fat, and we're all going to die early. But they don't offer very much advice or certainly evidence-based useful advice on what you can do about it. This book is about the science of sleep. It's about what goes on during sleep, which is something of a mystery, obviously, but it's a mystery that we've begun to solve. Uh, but it's primarily about tried and tested techniques, which are not the obvious ones, for helping you improve your sleep and cope with those 3 a.m. awakenings. Well, let's go to uh, one of the studies that I've picked up, uh, which is at the beginning of your book, where you ask volunteers to sleep normally for two nights, then go to bed later than normal for two nights. Can you just talk about that study? Sure. And that was one I took part in as well. We were wanting to see what the impact of a couple of short nights would have, particularly on their blood sugar levels. And so we did that and we gathered together with the professor and uh, we tested their blood sugar levels and they had shot up. So a couple of people who were, you know, otherwise healthy, their blood sugars were now in the diabetic range. And that was partly because when they had cut back on their sleep, the next morning, they felt ravenously hungry, and then they started eating lots of biscuits and, you know, the normal comfort foods that you tend to eat when you're tired. 
And unfortunately, the research shows that after a bad night's sleep, people typically eat around 400 calories more than they normally would. And that's about 1,200 kilojoules. Yeah, that was incredible. I wrote down uh, one of the people in the study said he wanted lots of biscuits. And I didn't just have one. I'd go for 10 custard creams. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know what it's like. um, You're tired and you reach for the comfort foods. And that's terrible for your waistline, but it's also bad for your sleep because we know that eating junk food, particularly food which is rich in sugar, will actually disrupt your sleep. And in the book, the Fast Asleep book, we have quite a lot of recipes because there is actually evidence that what I describe as a Mediterranean-style diet will have a positive impact on your sleep. And it seems to do so via the impact on your microbiome, which are the bacteria and other microbes that live in your gut and which actually produce signals to the brain, which helps calm things down. And um, that seems to be one of the mechanisms by which diet has a big impact on sleep. Mary, in with your time-restricted eating, if you like, one of the things you'd advocate is eating your last meal as early as possible. Would you? Is that one of the things that you would be suggesting? Uh, yes, I mean, certainly as early as practical. Uh, the problem is mainly that people have an evening meal. It's got gradually later and later on. Ancestors would probably have finished eating about 6 p.m., whereas now it's more like 8 p.m. and sometimes later, and then you have a sort of late-night snack um, and a bit of cheese or something like that, and you have a late-night drink. And so you're heading to bed, and you've probably eaten about 20 minutes beforehand, and your body doesn't like it, but your body is trying to slow down. One of the things which triggers sleep is when your heart rate starts to drop. And the trouble is if your body's trying to digest food, then your heart rate goes up, your metabolic rate goes up. So particularly if you suffer from things like uh, acid regurgitation, then eating close to bedtime is a really bad idea. Mm. So if you can, you know, stop eating two to three hours, even a bit longer before you go to bed, you'll find that improves your sleep and going to a deeper sleep. Uh, But obviously it takes a little while to get used to that because most of us are kind of used to having those late night snacks. And again, same thing the other end, Instead of leaping out of bed and immediately eating something, you give it a little time, you delay your breakfast a bit, then there are benefits to that as well. Just extending that overnight fast seems to come with benefits. In your book, you also talk about uh, different testings that, you, that, that people can use. One of them is uh, a test for daytime sleepiness or sleep debt. It's quite interesting. I hadn't read that before. It's called a sleep onset latency test or spoon test. Can you, can yes. you share with our listeners how that works? Sure, because one of the best tests of whether you're getting enough sleep is do you feel sleepy during the day? There are online quizzes you can do as well, which are quite useful. And if you you wake up and you feel tired or if you fall asleep in the cinema or you fall asleep on the sofa during the day, then that would suggest you're not getting enough sleep. But there is this test which was originally developed by sleep researchers in the 1950s. And the idea is you go to bed in the afternoon Um, choose a quiet time and you carry to bed a metal tray and a spoon and what you do is you look at the time you lie down you close your eyes you hold on to the spoon and you hold your hand over the side of the bed and you hold it over where the metal tray is lying and the idea there is when you fall asleep the spoon falls out of your hand it hits the metal tray with a loud clang and you wake up And then you have a look at your watch or your timepiece and see how long it has been since you went to bed. How quickly did you fall asleep? 
And if you fall asleep within 10 minutes, that's bad. Within 15 minutes is pretty bad. Within 20 minutes is okay. So um, you can do it much more simply these days just by setting the alarm on your phone or whatever for, say, 15 minutes. Go to bed, set the alarm, close your eyes, and does the alarm wake you up? If it does, then you probably have a sleep problem. Well, I mean, there's just so many things out there that affect our sleep patterns. So you're sort of saying to people to not have TV sets and things in their rooms, I guess? Yeah, the book is full of information and tips about things you should do. One of the things you should absolutely start with is setting a regular pattern when you go to bed, when you get up and stick to that. But you also need to practice what's called sleep hygiene. And that means making sure the room is dark, it's cool, you're comfortable, but that you don't have the TV and you don't have the smartphone to hand. Mm. Because as you say, what happens is they're hugely addictive. It's like spooning sugar into your system late at night. What it does is it just stimulates your brain. It's partly the light, but it's mainly the fact these devices have been created specifically to keep you hooked. That's what they do. They get their money from having you online. So if you're endlessly checking social media and things like that, that will get your brain buzzing at exactly the time when it needs to be calming down. So ideally, you do not take these devices to bed with you. Put the iPhone or whatever it might be, the other side of the room, uh, turn it off if you can bear to, uh, don't have a television in your room, don't have stimulation in your room. What you want to do is you want to associate bed with sleep and sex and nothing else. A book is kind and fine, particularly if it's a slightly boring book. You know, I often read uh, for 10 or 15 minutes before I go to sleep. But any form of stimulation in bed, treating it as a sort of playpen, is just terrible for sleep. Because what you're doing is you're training your brain to associate bed with all sorts of exciting things going on. And that means you're going to struggle to sleep. If you're one of these people who toss and turns at night, a lot of us do that as well. And I think actually a friend of mine read your book recently and he was a, having trouble with his sleep. One of the things I think you suggest is actually to get up and, and read a bit of a book. Is that what you're saying? To, and help to help you get back to sleep? Absolutely. So if you wake in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep, so you've been there for you know, five, ten minutes, whatever it might be, uh, then the best advice is you get out of bed you go and find some other quiet corner of your house and you read a book or you listen to some music, something which is not stimulating. And basically you wait until you feel tired. And when you do feel tired, you go back to bed. That way you are again training your brain to associate bed, not with stress, not with lying there, tossing and turning and things like that, but just with sleep. It is an unbelievably effective technique developed by psychologists. It's called stimulus control. And it really, really does work. And that's kind of what I do now. Lying there fretting is the worst sort of thing you can do. Lying there worrying about the fact that you can't go to sleep is even worse. Running all those events from the day you've had or the day ahead again, they'll keep you awake. Don't do it. Another technique I would recommend is breathing. Breathing exercises, just what I call 424 where you breathe into your nose to count to four, hold it for two, and out through your mouth to count to four. And you do that for a couple of minutes. And what it does is it makes your heart rate drop. And as I said, that keeps you calm. And it also is a trigger for sleep. So breathing exercises, and I've got quite a few in the book, are a very, very handy way of dealing with stress. The other thing I've noted here is that you've done a little bit of uh, research, or probably quite a lot, on uh, seasonal affective disorder. I'm actually living here in a state in Australia called Victoria where we have some longer, cooler months here. So can you talk a bit about what that is? And also you mentioned in that 
You're discussing that about light boxes. Sure. So, signal affective disorder, light is hugely important to us. I mean, we evolved on the plains of Africa where we've been exposed to a lot of light a lot of the time. We were outdoors most of the time when we weren't in caves. But in the modern world, we live pretty much our lives, particularly in the UK, indoors. And for example, now I'm, I'm in a hotel room. I'm stuck here yeah. for a week, and that's not doing good things to either my sleep or my mood. It's really <laughs> important to get out and expose yourself to sunlight. I've got a light meter on my phone, and what that tells me is that by the window, which is where I'm sitting, the light is about 300 lux. A foot or two into the room, and it's only 120 lux. Outside, it's quite bright and sunny. It would be 10,000 lux. So you can see the levels of light are just dramatically different. Mm. And we know that as we go into the winter months, in a lot of countries, particularly Scandinavian countries, but also the UK, and to some degree, obviously, in Australia, uh, because the days become shorter, the nights become longer, it's cold, wet, people don't want to go outside, people start to suffer from this thing called seasonal affective disorder. It's kind of like a depression, but it's very specific to the winter months. It's absolutely linked to light exposure or the lack of it. It's associated with feeling low, but also craving carby foods. And the best treatment for it seems to be to get more light into your life. Mm -hmm. And you can either do that by, you know, making sure you go outside a lot or by getting a light box. And that's what I've done at home. I've got a light box uh, by my computer, 10,000 lux. And I use that quite a lot in the winter months. I forgot to put it in my bag. So, uh, and I can't buy one in the hotel room here. So I'm having to uh, deal with it by just staring out the window. But that's one thing I wish I'd um, remembered to bring with me. I didn't, in a funny way, I didn't think I'm going to bright and sunny Australia. Why would I need a light bulb? <laughs> yeah. So how does that Yeah, sitting in hotel rooms. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell. I can hear that it's staring your head in a lot. Yep. How does that light box work then if you had that there with you now? Would you just have that on um, next to where you're sitting or something? How does it? Yes. For example, my wife Claire is in the room with me. I'm sitting by the window. She's sitting about three or four feet away from the window working on her laptop. She's got work to do. And um, where she is is pretty gloomy. Uh, if we had the light box, um, I'd have the light box on beside her and she'd be getting a good old dose of light. The important thing is you do it in the morning and maybe the early afternoon. Whenever you're feeling low, it's kind of like the equivalent of having a cup of coffee. It just kind of perks you up. But wow. like coffee, don't have, don't have it in the evening because that will just wake you. I was talking to an astronaut, a British astronaut, and he said up in the space station, because they're sort of zooming around the world thousands of times a day, they have to create an artificial day and night. So they have the light is a kind of pleasant, uh, it's the same sort of wavelengths as you would in the morning light, in the equivalent of the morning, and then it gradually gets darker. And he used to take pictures by opening the windows and taking pictures of the earth. But he said as soon as he did that, the blast of light from the sun would just disrupt his sleep for a couple of days. Uh, you even have to obey the rules of earth when you're up in space. <laughs> and so the, the type of light that it is, is it just is that just a, like a white light? I guess it, maybe I'm not going to that too much. I was just thinking about the difference between that sort of light and blue light? I mean, it's broadly white light with quite a lot of orange in it. Um, so it represents early morning light because the way the light, the light kind of looks the same to us, but the reality is what you get in the morning is more orangey and in the evening you get more blue light. And so it is, um, yeah, it is a different spectrum, but it's also a different level of intensity. 10,000 lux is the equivalent of a bright sunny day. If it was overcast, it'd be about 1,000 lux. And as I said, in your average bedroom, it's probably about 100 lux. So you have to use the light judiciously 
because if you use it the wrong time of day, think of it like caffeine. If you took a massive great dose of caffeine just before you went to bed, that would not be a good idea. Have it, you know, first thing in the morning, it'll brighten you up. Coming back to the food, which is obviously is uh, what your book's mostly about and diet and the Mediterranean diet and sleep, you've developed a thing on your online called an M-score and people can go on and fill that out. Is that right? Can you just talk a bit about that? Yes. So the idea there is we know that a Mediterranean-style diet is pretty well the healthiest diet on the planet. Um, speak to anybody who studies this work and whether it is for helping sleep or it is to lose weight or, uh, you know, prevent yourself getting dementia, whatever. But the question is, what is a Mediterranean diet? And um, if you've ever been to Mediterranean, uh, you obviously see people eating a lot of pizza and pasta. And unfortunately, it is not that. The Mediterranean diet they're describing is the traditional diet that people used to eat. And so the Med diet score basically says, how close is your current diet to that? And you get certain points for things like eating plenty of vegetables and fruit eating oily fish uh, at least a couple of times a week, consuming olive oil, and also consuming a modest amount of um, red meat. Red meat is actually not a bad thing uh, if it's eaten in moderation. There's some quite good evidence um, showing the benefits for mood there. And the other important thing is things called legumes. And these are sort of kidney beans, uh, butter beans, pinto beans, uh, and things which, and lentils, things which are super cheap forms of protein popular with vegetarians and vegans, uh, but which a lot of us have not included in our diet because we no longer know what to do with them. Uh, a lot of the recipes contain these things. Claire has also created recipes uh, like how to make chocolate cake, which includes red kidney beans. And you wouldn't believe that they taste good, but they taste really, really good. <laughs> so there are ways of sneaking them into the diet, even into the diet of kids. I think if there was any superfood, I would um, say legumes fall into that category. And as I said, they're a very cheap source of protein. You can buy them tinned. Uh, you can store them forever, dried. And um, when you know how to cook with them, they are super tasty as well. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so what's your website again if people want to find out more about that? Which, which website would they go to? Sure. Um, one of the best ones is thefast800.com, uh, which is about uh, rapid weight loss, which is particularly useful for people who snore a lot, because we know if you lose about 5% of your body mass, uh, then you will stop snoring, uh, but which has other advice about sleep. The other place you can go is my wife, Dr. Claire Bailey. She has an Instagram account where she has lots of recipes if you're interested in mid-style recipes, which can be done easily and cheaply. And you can find her on Instagram at Dr. Claire Bailey, spelled C-L-A-R-E, B-A-I-L-E-Y. So you can see her cooking and you can see me cooking and you can see our kids cooking as well. Um, all super healthy uh, foods, uh, which will also help your sleep. Thank you so much. I'm going to finish the interview by asking you a curly question or it might be a silly question. But I often find with sleep, uh, particularly on a full moon, I can never sleep. Have you got any thoughts on that? <laughs> no, uh, that's not what I, I know the myths around werewolves and things like that. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if it is simply because it's very bright. Though, to be honest, the amount of light that the moon emits is, um, or reflects of the sun, I doubt is strong enough to have much impact on your circadian rhythms. But uh, who knows? Maybe there is something mysterious in there. Maybe there's a touch of werewolf in you. <laughs> all right well look thank you so much i hope you don't have too hard a week the rest of the week in your room there and you get out to enjoy 
some of Australia. How long, once you get out, how long are you here for doing your filming? I'll be here for about seven weeks. So hopefully we'll be out in a week and then we start filming immediately all over Australia. And then I head back to the UK just in time for lockdown Christmas. Oh, golly. Well, I hope you have a really good seven weeks while you're in Australia. Dr. Michael Mosey, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on the show again.